to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Get ready for another thrilling, informative episode. Let's hear a question from Julia Artail from New Jersey. She is part of Positive Youth. It's a prevention coalition from New Jersey, and they are able to get youth together and um, prevent drug use before it starts. And a shout out to Erin Cohen. She's the project coordinator for Positive Youth, and she coordinated several people to record questions. Positive Youth and the New Jersey Coalition also hosted me as a speaker for their Safe Coalition Conference on October 30th. I spoke about cases from the front line and marijuana. So thank you so much to the New Jersey Coalition and Positive Youth for that invitation and helping sponsor this show with a wonderful question. So let's hear it from Julia. Hi, my name is Julia and I'm calling from Flemington, New Jersey. I'm currently a junior at Hunter and Central, and here's my question. There is a lot of hype on marijuana, but no one ever dies of marijuana. So why is it so dangerous? Thank you, Julia Artel from New Jersey for your very important question. Um, your question talks about deaths and does anybody die from marijuana or really anything else? They say death is a fact and everything else is conjecture. That's a quote from Dr. William Farr. He is the father of epidemiology. And as our question of the day touches on the tip of the iceberg of the drug and addiction problem, deaths and mortality, I knew exactly who to bring for this episode. Um, the, the best expert to answer a question about death is a medical examiner. And I have on the show today my favorite, very favorite Medical examiner, I get to have a favorite medical examiner, Dr. Stephen Kampman. He is a medical examiner of San Diego County. He's kind of like the NCIS detective, kind of like uh, Jethro Gibbs or Mark Hammond, but way more handsome. Dr. Kampman, thank you so much for being on this uh, on this show, on this episode, and really talking about a very serious topic of um, death and mortality on addiction. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Lev. It's uh, my pleasure to be here, and I hope I can answer everything you want to know. I'm, um, I can tell I, you a lot about uh, how people die. That That is tragically true. Dr. Kampman is our San Diego County Chief Deputy Medical Examiner. He went to medical school in Creighton University in 1992. Um, and uh, so I think I'm older than you. I'm class of 89. Um, uh, Dr. Campman continued. If going to medical school um, for four years is not enough, he then did more training in residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at UC Davis, and then did more training in forensic pathology in Northern California. And then he served our country uh, in the U.S. Air Force as chief deputy medical examiner for medical legal operations investigations. So that may be interesting about how military investigations are different from our county uh, investigations. And now you continue to work as a medical examiner and testify in court. 
I bet uh, uh, this is an audio um, uh, interview, but uh, you're dressed in a suit. And I think that you, uh, when you go to court, you probably go wear a suit. And then when you're uh, doing uh, autopsies, you probably dress differently. Correct. Yeah. So uh, a suit for, for court and uh, interviews and things like that. And in autopsies, I change out of these and wear scrubs and then basically standard surgical protective equipment, um, except for a different kind of respirator sometimes, depending on the on the, the case. Interesting. So now during COVID, are you wearing all that mask and goggles that I have to wear at work? Or are you always used to you're used to doing that? Right, we're used to it. We we wear those all the time, uh, but now if we uh, know or, or suspect a, a death might be due to COVID or that the person might have COVID, even if they're dead from something else, uh, we wear at least an, an N95 respirator, or we can wear a um, um, powered air purifying respirator. And if we know someone has COVID and we still have to perform an autopsy, then we'll we'll do their autopsy in an airborne isolation room. Uh, to keep the ventilation away from the rest of the staff. That's fascinating because I thought the transmission is to you when somebody passed away, it would be like a different respiratory illness that it's not as infectious to you. Right. We don't know exactly. And that's the problem. We don't know exactly. So we want to just be careful. That makes um, sense. A lot of, uh, it is obviously different working with a dead person than a live patient with no coughing and, and that kind of uh, thing from the, the dead person. But there are portions of the autopsy where we can aerosolize particles. And that's what we have to be careful of, especially. So, Dr. Kalman, can you tell us what is a, a medical examiner? A medical examiner is a doctor whose uh, specialty is pathology and forensic pathology and works for usually a city or county or state government um, to determine cause and manner of death. It's the function of a coroner or a coroner's pathologist. What's the difference of a, a coroner and a medical examiner? People seem to use that interchangeably. Yep. Um, there are two systems for medical legal death investigation in the United States, the coroner system and the medical examiner system. Um, the output is about the same. It's a determination about a cause and manner of death and identification of a person that's dead. The main difference is the person in charge and the one responsible for making that cause and manner of death determination. In a coroner system, it's a lay person that's a non-medical person uh, who makes that determination. And in a medical examiner system, it's a, a doctor who's specifically trained in, in death investigation making the determination about uh, cause and manner of death. So a medical examiner is a doctor and a coroner usually is not. Correct. There, doctors can be elected or appointed coroner, um, but it's not, not required around the United States. Right. So I think we're very fortunate in California to have uh, you as a medical examiner for San Diego to have a medical examiner because most of the state has coroners. I think most of the country, right, has coroners rather than medical examiners. Correct. In fact, in our, in our state, there are 58 counties. Um, most have sheriff coroners where the sheriff is the coroner. And then there's a much smaller number that are independent coroners. And then just a handful, five, that are medical examiner counties. Right. And that's important to understand because a lot of people, when it, we're looking at drugs and addiction and why people die, they 
um, there's a complaint that there's not uniformity around our country in um, you know toxicology reports or cause of deaths or listing that. So um, two different systems is part of it, but there's probably a lot more that we can do as far as creating a, a standard uh, across the United States. Absolutely. In fact, you know, certification of death or completing death certificates is so is taught so little in medical school. I mean, I don't know. I bet you can't even remember being taught about completing a death certificate. I don't remember being taught that in medical school. Maybe part of one pathology lecture, but yeah. um, people get out in practice or when they're an intern or a resident and they're handed a death certificate and maybe medical records or maybe they know the patient and they're just asked to write something down. And um, there is a there's a lot of thought and some art that goes into death certification. Right. And having someone like you do it, um, where, where, you know, you have a lot of training and really it's an investigation. I do remember signing one death certificate. I was um, flying with Life Flight, a helicopter, and we landed on a golf course and the guy passed away from a heart attack. And that was it. Usually emergency doctors or helicopter physicians don't sign death certificates, but they couldn't find anybody to to sign it. And he was in a remote area, a golf course, and they couldn't release the body or bury him. And I agreed to to sign the death certificate, but I'm sure I didn't really know what I was doing. It happens. And we see strange things uh, like um, someone may certify death as diabetes due to prostate cancer, due to heart disease, which they're all, they're all natural diseases, but they're not due, one isn't due to the other usually. So um, just uh, sometimes the death certificates just don't make sense. When I was working at ONDCP, we talked a lot about standards. I visited NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The people there are the geekiest people in the world. The kilogram, the world's standard for weight, is not good enough for them. They wanted more decimals for accuracy. But NISTs are professionals in creating all types of standards, for bulletproof vests, for drones, for vitamins, for active shooting events. And and they're working, the CDC now is working on creating standards for medical examiners and coroners, you know, in reporting dust, so it's more uniform. So um, I'm happy that that project uh, uh, moved along was while I was there. There actually are some standards for investigating deaths um, due to drugs, and um, the National Association of Medical Examiner has standards, and this, the standards have been challenged because of the huge number of deaths that the medical examiners and coroners have to um, handle. So the, the standard has been that anybody that is thought to have died from an overdose needs to have a full autopsy. That is, we can't just say they died of an overdose because we drew their blood and found there was some methamphetamine in there. They could have had a bad, bad heart disease. They could have had something else. There, there can be all kinds of other things wrong. So the standard is that anyone that dies from an overdose should have a full autopsy. But across the country, um, Medical examiners and coroners pathologists have become overwhelmed by the number of bodies they have to examine, likely due to overdoses. So there have been efforts to change the standard to make it be that if an overdose is very reasonably suspected, say the the death scene evidence really points to an, an overdose and there's no evidence of anything else, that maybe they could just draw blood 
and um, not do a full autopsy. Just because there's, in some places, there's not another way to keep up with examining the bodies and certifying the deaths. Isn't it sad about the volume, over 80,000 people a year in the United States? Um, Dr. Campman, uh, why did you become a pathologist? What attracted you to that specialty? Kind of a long story, but shortly. Um, so my dad was a biology teacher, and so I, I grew up with that, and I'd um, visit his classroom or go on field trips with his class sometimes. So I was going to do that. And then I thought about how people were more interesting than bunnies and trees. I uh, so I thought um, medicine would be better or, or good for me. And I was thinking surgeon. And so in high school, I was really thinking of being a surgeon. And then just by chance, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and the uh, LA City Schools had a, a thing called Boys Day in the Government. And they chose various senior boys to go do things around Los Angeles that had to do with what they were thinking about doing. So a friend of mine that was going to the Air Force Academy got put in the control tower at the LA airport. Another friend that was interested in, you know, traffic and signals got put in the city engineering department. And for some reason, they chose me to take uh, Dr. Noguchi's job for a day at the LA County Coroner's Office, Coroner Medical Office. Um, and I hadn't, I liked watching Quincy, the TV show, but I hadn't really. I did too. That was a that. good show. Yeah. Um, so I, I went there for the day and I wasn't supposed to see any dead people and I hadn't seen any dead people before that. Um, and I was looking at a, a, a daily list and I recognized one of the pathologist's names on there uh, that, uh, he was my brother's base, baseball coach and went to our church. So I, I mentioned that I, I knew him, and uh, so they took me down to see him, and in the autopsy area. And um, he was alive, or he passed away. Yeah, no, he was. Yeah, he was a pathologist oh, working there. Yeah, sorry. Um, and so they walked me right in, um, and I saw what was going on, and I just thought that was really interesting. So it kind of started from there, and um, so I went to medical school then knowing that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and oh. most of the rotations in medical school confirmed that, pathology anyway, like um, oncology or cancer. You know, you may, someone may go to their doctor and their doctor tells them they have cancer, but their doctor got the diagnosis from a pathologist. That's right. Um, when somebody has twins, and if they really want to know if they're identical or fraternal twins, they'll ask the pathologist about their placenta examination. So it's the pathologist that picked. So basically, everything kind of pointed back to pathology for me. And so I knew it was right. That's great. You know, it's those experiences in your youth that really play such an important impression in, in what you want to do. Uh, also related to drugs, because if you're using drugs during that prime time when your brain is growing, then instead of deciding whether you want to be in the control tower or a pathology lab, your your brain is building other neuronal networks that lead you to more drugs instead of all these wonderful creative things. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I do feel like different doctors have different personalities. Emergency physicians tend to be hyper and multitasking and a little ADD-ish. Um, pathologists may be people who say, don't deal with 
people as much. That's what you're in the lab, but you, Dr. Kampman, have to deal with people a lot. Right. That's, um, I think, a, a common kind of um, misunderstanding that even on TV, the, the pathologist is usually portrayed as being in the basement, eating a jelly donut and, you know, <laughs> shirt not, not tucked in and papers. Well, I shouldn't say that because I have papers all over here right now, but um, no, we're on the phone all the time with the uh, families of people that have died, explaining to them what's, what's happened or answering questions, attorneys, um, police officers, just um, all kinds of people uh, want information that we have. So we're, we're always communicating with people. Right. And when you work on, uh, speaking of TV, they talk about the, you know, the medical examiner as they're doing the autopsy, they talk to the body and, 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 you know, ask them to help with their investigation. Do you ever, do you ever relate to the people that you're working on that have passed away? Yeah, I, I don't talk to them. Uh, and I try not to relate to them um, because it, it can make things more difficult. You know, I have to do some pretty invasive things to people. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's just better that I uh, talk with those in the room with me and uh, we talk, you know, do my work and and um, talk about workplace things or talk about our family or, you know, where we're going later or that kind of thing. So regular work conversation or and um just concentrate on doing my best for that the dead person to figure out what happened to them. Yeah. Interesting. We have, you know, in the emergency departments also, you can't stop and always think about how tragic a situation is because you have 10 other people that you need to deal with. So you have to just do what's right and move on with without really, you know, letting that get you down. But I have to say, as an emergency physician, my job is to keep people alive. My motto is to hopefully never have someone die on my shift. Um, so when they get to you, you're seeing my failures. And that's kind of a, you know, we, we do everything not to have someone die. And I don't know how your perspective may be a little different. Yeah, we, we certainly don't look at it as failure. Uh, if anything, a, a failure to stop something from happening, but not... Uh, not, I wouldn't say a failure, um, but we do look at things differently for sure. And the way I see that is uh, sometimes what's documented in the, the records from the hospital that I, the district attorney asked me once to, to evaluate, to look at some records and then testify about someone that had been stabbed uh, in the chest twice and lived. So a success, not a failure. Um, and the description was of a laceration of this part of the chest and um, this size and whatever. Well, uh, pathology-wise, everything about the description of the injuries was wrong. That um, they were stab wounds, not lacerations. Lacerations are blunt force injuries. Um, and location was wrong. I didn't know that. Well, there you <laughs> have it. So it, it may be just uh, minutiae that only pathologists care about, but... Um, so we, we don't treat, obviously we don't treat at all, but we diagnose very, very carefully. And, you know, there's just a difference in, in how we practice and, and what's practiced in the emergency room there. It's absolutely fine. There are two lacerations of the chest. We got to stop the bleeding and make sure they have enough air and blood. 
but we don't have to do that. We just have to concentrate on exactly what those injuries are. Yes, yeah, def- I, am, I am sure your description of uh, skin and injuries are way more detailed than, you know, you know, a big smush in the back of the head. The best thing that happened to us is taking pictures and putting them in the chart because we're not really good at descriptions. Dr. Campman, to, to take us back to the issue of, of, of drugs um, and the overdose deaths, all those p- cases come to you as a medical examiner. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so you see everybody who died of, uh, of drugs in San Diego County. What, what stands out um, to you when, when you look at those deaths? Well, I, what stands out to me is when I look at the numbers and the overall data. It is everyone dies from drugs. So young people and old people, yes, there are peak ages and one sex more dominant than the other, uh, depending on Which the drug. Men. men die more of drugs than women. Right. Um, and I just happen to have numbers for uh, fentanyl uh, in, my, on, in my head right now. That that is the average, average age is 36 right now, and, of course, male. Um, but that, you know, we do have a range, even with fentanyl, from 17 up into the 60s and even 70s, depending on the month, uh, years of age. And people who live on the street and people who live in fancy houses, just everybody, anybody can die from drugs. Yes, it's an equal opportunity killer. It's terrible. It's a great equalizer. Um, fentanyl has been a game changer because usually people who struggle with addiction or get into drugs may experiment, they may quit, they may continue, they may get medical conditions for it. But this, you just drop dead in the middle of whatever you're doing. You just drop dead. Um, yes. And there are uh, maybe a couple reasons for that. Um, there's a, a uh, kind of a condition or a one of the mechanisms that fentanyl can kill is a um, kind of a hormonal thing, a norantrinergic thing. Um, that's the hormonal thing I was talking about that actually kind of causes a paralysis of the respiratory muscles. Um, that's the way of my way of explaining wooden chest syndrome. Have you heard, heard that? Yes, term, we have that because we, we use fentanyl as a medicine. And, and so we know that that's one of the side effects, uh, um, heart and chest. And so I think that may be one of the reasons why people die so quickly with fentanyl. In the last month, we saw a man actually that died with his naloxone in his hand. Oh. I think he, you know, obviously he knew something was happening, but then died so quickly, um, he couldn't administer the medicine. Right. And, you know, I, I worked yesterday in the emergency department and most of my patients who tested positive for meth tested positive for fentanyl as well. And when I talked to them about it, they didn't know. Um, and uh, so all those patients got a prescription for naloxone, which is a reversal for opiates. It doesn't help with methamphetamine. But what and tell us what you're seeing. Fentanyl now is mixed up with what other drugs? We see people with fentanyl and heroin, um, and fentanyl and meth, methamphetamine, of course. Basically, fentanyl and all kinds of things, uh, cocaine. 
Um, we don't always know how the medicines came to, or the drugs came to be in them. So it may be that they thought they were having meth and they had meth and fentanyl, or it may be that they used meth and they used fentanyl. Um, but a lot of the time, especially in the recent few months, a lot of what we see are people that were using uh, uh, counterfeit oxycodone or alprazolam pills. Um, and alprazolam and is Xanax for Xanax, our Yeah. We're using a bit of one of those pills. And instead of having oxycodone or alprazolam in it, it had instead fentanyl. And they died because of that. And it's, it's so tragic. I feel like that's murder because people didn't know that they were going to get something that would kill them. They thought that they're just having fun with the Xanax. I've seen that, you know, with my patients. They said, oh, yeah, I bought these pills for 20 bucks. It's just to help me relax. And it, they got fentanyl. Yeah. And actually, the, the um, U.S. attorney and the San Diego County District attorney, I think, I'm uh, speaking for them, um, not officially, I think they feel the same way because uh, over a year ago, the first case in San Diego County of someone who sold drugs was prosecuted for murder rather than just for selling drugs. So I, I think the, the, the local and federal prosecutors are uh, thinking that same way uh, right. for that reason. Yeah. What about um, Julia, who called into the show? I'm sure is interested in all our discussion, but she asked specifically about marijuana. Did have you found fentanyl in in marijuana? Um, well, we don't have we don't often have the the drug itself. We have the person's blood, um, but we have seen people with cannabinoids and fentanyl in their blood. So, you know, if if there was fentanyl in their cannabinoids, or if they use them separately, I don't know. Right. That, I guess that's a question for law enforcement, because I do know that they've reported um, finding fentanyl in vaping products. I think San Diego had the first reported case on that. Right. We, we, have, we have seen that. So, Dr. Kampman, when this question about marijuana and does one puff kill is perfect for you, because several years ago, I came to you and asked you, um, can you get me the data on all the THC deaths. And I was very careful to say, I don't want, you know, we can't say that the THC, which is that most um, psychoactive component in marijuana kills, but I just wanted to see the association. And you, I learned that because I published um, the death diaries, looking at data from you about all the different um, drugs people died of and what they were prescribed before they died. And when I was looking at that, I saw that you had everything. You had testosterones and Benadryls and Tylenol. I mean, every single drug there is, you had that on your Excel file. And the only drug that was missing was THC. And I asked you if you can extract that information. So what we were able to do was then identify people who had cannabinoids in their blood. So why it didn't appear on the first data set we gave is because we, we as, a, as a profession, even medicine, don't have the same kind of numbers um, for cannabinoids regarding their toxicity that we do for so many other things. Like for ethanol, we know that um, people can have toxic effects at you know, 0 0.04, 0 0.05, 0 0.08, 0 
point one, and then have even more toxic effects at, at you know, point two percent, or have a coma at point three or point four percent. But we don't yet have those. I mean, I don't yet have those kind of numbers with cannabinoids. So we know that cannabinoids um, have some um, depressant effects like alcohol and heroin and fentanyl and oxycodone have, but not uh, apparently not um, to that uh, level. But we don't really have that quantification um, yet. Um, but you had, but you had it. You had um, all the other drugs. You know, the testosterone and the. I remember Benadryl really stand out because when I looked at the data, I realized that, you know, so much of what you say that you do affects how I practice medicine. I've really learned that. Um, it's when I see all these people who died from opiates and our prescriptions that changed how I practice medicine. When I saw all the people who died from Benadryl over the counter, I realized that's a central nervous system depressant and that that's additive to everything else that you do. But you had to do something special in your Excel file. You told me it was like uh, pulling teeth, right? And that's, that's um, you know, my, my husband's a dentist, so that stuck with me. But you were able to do that. And I think you're the first medical examiner in the country who was able to extract that data and at least show something so we could ask more questions. And uh, that ability came from us, our department, our county, having our toxicology lab in-house. So um, a, a lot of medical examiner and coroner's offices uh, use contractor or private laboratories, and they get excellent results, mm -hmm. really good turnaround times, but they don't have the raw data. Um, so we here, when we do our own testing, we have access to um, the raw data. So um, the data set I originally produced for you had just drugs uh, that were in the part of the cause of death. Um, but lots of people have drugs in them, but it's not necessarily part of their cause of death. And that's what I was able to get, was what drugs were in someone, even if it wasn't determined to be part of their cause of death. And that's where I found um, so much of the cannabinoids. Again, that just opened my eyes. Like, uh, I can't imagine. you. This was back in 2016. You had 462 people who died that had THC in their system. That's 15% of all 3,000 plus autopsies that you did that year. And the cause of death you divided, I also learned a lot. You had accidents, um, suicides, homicides, and natural deaths and overdoses. Overdoses, I think most people understand. Accidents, you had 32 drivers that, you know, were under the influence of THC at some point. Um, um, suicides, homicides was a good percentage of homicides are associated with THC. And what struck me the most out of everything was what you called natural death. And, and right. natural means you know, what is, I think natural, what means to you is different than what it means to other people. Yeah. Uh, for us, a natural death is a, a death that results just from a process of aging or a disease. Um, and like I said, for the cannabinoids, we just, we don't have a, a way to quantify or, or um, describe how, at what concentration or in what way um, cannabis would, you know, contribute directly to a death. So we're still watching 
So we've talked about the possibility of uh, coronary artery thrombosis being associated with cannabis. And that's when there is a blood clot in an artery of your heart that that you die from, but the rest of your arteries look good. And you had a case like that. Right. There have been a couple of cases, I think a couple here, and then there've been others around the country. So there's that possibility. We're watching for uh, a death related to cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. That's um, my favorite that's, diagnosis. You might that's, be better to tell us about that than I. I'm going to have a show and an expert just on that. Um, but uh, it's my favorite diagnosis because we see it every single day in the emergency department. I call it an audible diagnosis. You can you can hear it. I don't have to even look at it because it's such a sound for somebody who's screaming and vomiting in terrible agony that we called it scrometing, screaming and vomiting. And it's chronic users, usually smoking versus edibles. And they, they are told that, hey, this is supposed to help your appetite. It's supposed to make you better. And it makes them miserable. Um, and I imagine that they end up in your office instead of mine when they get into trouble with electrolyte imbalance from vomiting too much. Right. So we have seen a, a death from a very related condition called cyclical vomiting syndrome, where the what goes on with the body is kind of similar, but uh, we couldn't relate it to cannabis, or it wasn't related to cannabis in this person's case, but we think the outcome would be similar, um, and that would be we electrolyte. We see cyclical vomiting syndrome also in um, diabetics who have gastroparesis, where their stomach doesn't move, and then uh, uh, as well. And we used to call cannabis hyperemesis syndrome cyclical vomiting syndrome. We, we As the diseases, as we're learning more about the disease, we're calling it different names. There was actually uh, one case that made the news. I, I'm pretty sure it was in Louisiana, um, maybe a year and a half or two ago, where the coroner determined the cause of death to be cannabis toxicity. And the country just flew People off. People don't want to hear that. People yeah, so it, it went all over the, the media. I'm looking at Newsweek um, that someone determined cannabis to be the cause of death. And I never did hear the, the bottom line or, or get the uh, the details about how that determination was made. Um, but they're well, just I, I, looking at the data from you, I think that we need to ask this question more. I, I looked at the, you know, just looking at the natural, quote, quote, natural deaths, you know, a 23 year old with pneumonia who's smoking. I mean, that's not normal. Um, a 54 year old with high blood pressure. That makes you think about it. You even had a one-year-old with cannabis in the system, um, marijuana, and that, that, you know, just makes you ask questions. And I think about you as a, you know, if a medical examiner a hundred years ago working, doing autopsy and seeing all these black lungs all of a sudden, right? And they're like, hey, nobody dies of smoking a puff of cigarettes. Everybody's smoking cigarettes. But yet it took many, many years for the medical examiners and coroners to get together and say, yeah, these black lungs are from tobacco. It's not yeah. just a healthy plant. Yeah, I was only five about 100 years ago. So <laughs> so answering Julie's question, does anybody die of marijuana? The answer is we don't know just yet. We, I think so, but we don't know how to quantify it or relate it. So we think maybe some coronary artery coronary artery thrombosis or maybe but some Dr. electrolytes. Kaplan, what about somebody who's high and walks into a train? Didn't yeah. they die of cannabis? Well, that's that comes down to the, the, the art of death certification and the difference between 
a medical cause of death and a circumstance leading to death. So in that case, the cause of death would be likely something like multiple blunt force injuries because they were hit by a train. And the circumstances of the death could be that they were high from cannabis, um, just like it could be they had their earbuds in and weren't watching the train or... So it's an association. Other... Do you do you differentiate an association versus a, a causation? We do. So they're like, for instance, on our um, most of our death certificates, when someone's in a car crash, um, their death certificate will just say their injuries that killed them from the car crash, uh, where it may very well be that they had enough alcohol to make them intoxicated or cannabis and alcohol or... Which is a worse combination, right? Just um, it, exactly. it's the additive effect of alcohol and, and marijuana. For sure. Um, but we, we don't make that judgment as to the, the factors that caused them to crash. So, because, you know, they could have answered their phone or they could have, you know, been to pick something up or change the CD or turned around to whack their kid or... Um, any number of things that could cause someone to lose their concentration, falling asleep. So it is but certainly a factor that could have. I appreciate your meticulousness in, in, in what you do and the accuracy that you put into that. But shouldn't we, like an, at our end and people who are advocating and trying to work on issues of drugs and addiction, all the association of suicides and homicides, is, do you put that as a not as a causation, but an association? We include the information in our opinion in the autopsy report, but we don't, we don't draw that, uh, we don't assign that uh, blame or, we put the information there, but don't, um, uh, I, the blame isn't really the right word. Um, association. Right. We don't make the association, but we, we offer the information so that the association could be made. And so, I think that that's really important because when I looked at the data overall, I saw total number of overdose deaths rising, you know, steadily in a 10-year period and THC positive rising steadily over that 10-year period. And can you say it's a direct um, correlation? No, but it definitely has to make you ask some more questions. If you're finding... Um, more suicides and homicides with positive THC or drugs, you have, you know, that's important prevention work, as well as the natural deaths, right? If you're seeing, um, you know, pneumonias, or especially in young people with also THC or young people with cardiac disease, it, it was amazing. You have, I mean, 462 people, you have to kind of wonder or start to ask the questions. If we don't ask the questions, then we'll never figure it out. Right. And that's allowing or providing information that allows that discussion or those thoughts to progress is a big part of what we do. So we do collect this information and we make it available for people who need it. You know, in the group we, we and you looked at those years ago, uh, I just have those some of those numbers here. 29.1% of all homicide victims had cannabis in them, which That's was a much higher percentage than all comers. And, and it's, it's like that for other drugs too. Methamphetamine, um, a, you know, a, a good number of our the, the homicide victims we see have methamphetamine in them also. So, um, yeah, 
And again, I think you're, again, the the first and only medical examiner in the entire United States who was forward thinking enough to to pull those teeth and get that data and allow us to ask these important questions. Well, the American Heart Association has come out with a very strong uh, position statement urging work and education uh, about the dangers of cannabis and heart disease. Um, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, stroke. Um, so I'm appreciative for them of doing that. And I think as that word comes out, then all the medical examiners will be looking carefully. Julie asked, what's the hype about marijuana? And I wanted to just share with her um, some of the things we see in the emergency department, why, why I believe it's uh, dangerous uh, from what I see on my end. Um, we see increased use of opioids for people who are using marijuana, the impact it has on the growing brain, neonatal exposure, you know, stillbirths and prematurity when people are using when they're pregnant, you should definitely not use marijuana um, before you think you're going to get pregnant, while you're pregnant, while you're lactating or nursing. There's association with depression, suicidality, psychosis, effects on the heart, lung, there's cancer. I, Dr. Kemp, I don't know if you've seen associated lung cancer or testicular cancer associated with uh, cannabis? Yeah, we most cancer patients we don't see because they die with medical care. So we, we don't usually see people with cancer. Interesting. And then drug interactions. Also, last night, I admitted a patient to the hospital with um, internal bleeding. And uh, he was on um, a blood thinner, um, uh, like Plavix, for his heart stents. And uh, he was just in the hospital and they reversed him. He got better, you know, and he continued. Um, and I asked him about drug use as I ask all my patients. And he used uh, marijuana daily since he was 13, 14 years old. And I let him know something that most doctors don't know is that there are drug interactions. Cannabis um, and uh, blood thinners have an interaction that increase um, bleeding possibility. If you go to drugs.com and put in cannabis, you could even put in CBD, all these drug interactions pop up, especially blood thinners. So I don't, I don't know if you see that, Dr. Campman, um, but, uh, and I don't know how you would detect drug interactions as a medical examiner. Well, the first thing is we'd have to know about that interaction, which I didn't know. Oh, there you go. Well, you I'm, taught me something. I'm, I taught I'm you. glad I came here today too. Um, so also uh, blood thinners are not um, drugs, a class of medicines that are on our, um, the screens we use usually. Um, really? I mean, some are, but, um, I, I don't know as an, as an emergency physician, uh, you know, I say that a lot of my business comes from, you know, drugs and mental health, but all those blood thinners, uh, that people are taking that are prolonging life and they're important. And my own husband has been on them after his heart attack, but, um, when you fall down and you're on a blood thinner, you end up at a trauma center. And I've seen a lot of complications. So I'm surprised that that, that you don't track that because I feel like that's been an uptick. We do track it, but we don't test for it. So certainly if we see someone that fell and has a subdural hemorrhage or an injury, um, if someone was taking a, a, an anticoagulant or blood thinner, we do include that on the death certificate. So if someone dies with they fell and, and hit their head and had a subdural hemorrhage. The cause of death will be subdural hemorrhage or subdural hematoma or blunt force head trauma, either way. 
Um, and a contributing condition would be something, whatever caused them to have their anticoagulant therapy. So something like atrial fibrillation with anticoagulant therapy would be what we put on the death certificate also. Right. Because, yeah, definitely seeing that. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I started my career, the number one uh, cause of patients coming to the trauma center was car accidents. And now the number one cause of people coming to a trauma center is falls, elderly falls. Um, it actually yeah. was uh, such a a um, great number of people coming here for that reason. So obviously, if someone dies other than a natural death, the medical examiner will, will sign their death certificate, will investigate their death. Um, so those people who fell at home, a well-documented fall and um, broke their hip and then died a few days later or uh, struck their head and had a subdural hemorrhage. We had so many people like that, that we made a determination that we will still investigate the death, um, document the cause of death, make sure the circumstances match and everything's okay. There's no controversy, like nobody shoved them or, or nothing that could be homicidal. So if it looks like an accidental fall and someone died as the result, and their injuries are well documented in the hospital, and that whether or not they were on blood thinners is also documented. We don't bring their body in to examine it because there were just so many. Too much. You have to right. you have to triage your autopsies. You can't do it on so many people. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing I don't know if you probably don't see this on in your work, but contamination. There was a study out of UC Davis where you did part of your training, and they went to every dispensary and they found contaminants in all the marijuana products, uh, fungal and it's, it's, um, E. coli, aspergillus, all sorts of things. And people can get infections, especially I imagine immunocompromised. So you may not see those, right? Cause those are cancer deaths that you don't usually investigate. Right. Um, but we did have, um, we stumbled upon a similar, um, problem. Uh, I think it was in the last, it was right before the, uh, pandemic came to us, and it was about a drug uh, called metragenine, uh, sold or known as Kratom also. Kratom, and there, yeah. were, um, there was consideration about regulating that or, or controlling that in the county. Um, and there was also concern that uh, it's valuable to a lot of people. And so there was some discussion about uh, regulating it. But um, basically, one of the the um, the people that think it's a, a good drug or that it helps them and um, um, think it should be around, even they were saying that it, it should be regulated in some way so that because of contaminants, so that when right. they get it and buy it, that it, they can know it's safe. So, yeah, so I imagine that the cannabis might be similar, that if, if there are contaminants, that um, that could be dangerous. That's interesting. Yeah, there are people, a kratom is a type of opioid. So people who have an opiate use disorder may feel that they're, um, that this helps them. It is not recommended, um, for treatment, uh, of addiction, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Uh, again, there are other medicinal FDA approved medications that can help people who have opiate use disorder. Um, I just, I'm curious, I want to ask you about COVID. We had a, a conversation when the pandemic first hit, and I wanted to ask you how things were, if this made you have more business or less business when the pandemic first hit in February, March. Um, I was all ready to go into work and even die for my profession, but 
people didn't come. It was empty. And and I think you said something like that too. Right. So um, most of the people in the county that have died uh, from COVID are, we don't see. So as an infectious disease, a communicable disease that's a public health danger, the deaths should be reported to us. So we, we do record the death. But um, the government code allows for, if it's a natural death like that, even if it's a reportable death like that, um, that the medical examiner coroner can have or allow the, the doctor who has knowledge of that person to complete their death certificate. So in, in most of the people that die with uh, from COVID in our county, their, their own doctor signs their death certificate. We do see people who um, didn't have medical care here, like maybe they were sick in Mexico and uh, came up to the border for help and then died either at the border or just after they got to a, one of our hospitals here, yeah. um, and there was no doctor to sign their death certificate because they hadn't, uh, they didn't have a doctor here. Um, so we've we've seen some people like that, um, but overall, our the, the numbers of deaths we've seen from COVID is is not very big. But I think at the beginning of COVID, you were telling me that you're you were not busy. You we weren't. Yeah, car accidents were down and other accidents were down. Right? I mean, you were. You had a little right. bit of a vacation. Right. So April had the lowest number of traffic fatalities of any month for years. But yeah. then it picked up after that. But Are we back to the same amount of traffic fatalities? We're right around the, the same number, yeah. Um, but what we are way over is the number of deaths due to fentanyl. Um, I think we're we're expected to double the number of fentanyl deaths for 2020 as we had in 2019. So I can tell you we've already done that. Oh. Um, last year, there were uh, 151. And just at the end of September, we've had 316 now. Oh, that's so, that's really heartbreaking. Right. Um, and I know this conversation was supposed to be, you know, does anybody die of one puff from marijuana and what's the hype? But um, since we've talked so much about fentanyl, I have to share that we're starting a campaign in San Diego County of uh, increasing testing of fentanyl um, throughout hospitals and clinics that if if a doctor is getting a, a drug screen because they care about THC or cocaine or methamphetamine, they should also care about fentanyl. And if a, a positive fentanyl test results in the hands of a provider can result in letting the doctor know because they didn't know, letting the patient know, because a lot of them have no idea that they're exposed to fentanyl. Um, they can then get a prescription for naloxone and, and try to save. They could tell their friends so they're aware of this exposure and it can connect people to treatment. So I think the medical community needs that data and awareness so they can respond to the crisis. We, we've seen um, not a large number, but we've seen some cases where uh, a young person was in a hospital and presumed to, you know, everything looked like an overdose but the toxicology screen there was negative, um, and it was negative because the screen didn't include fentanyl. Right. Um, when they came here, we we found that they died with fentanyl. And that that I'm not surprised because there's very few hospitals around the country that include fentanyl in their drug screens. My hospital is unique because uh, I've been um, nudging for years about this, um, expecting a problem. Any conclusions you have about what you see? 
as a medical examiner and drugs and, and autopsies and where do you think we need to do? I think you are you are the educator. Every every year, um, you're the tip of that iceberg. You are the truth of what's going out there, and and we learn from you as you get your data of what we should do as a community for prevention. Well, I think uh, a couple of things right now. One is that deaths due to drug overdoses are a preventable death. They're preventable deaths. Yeah, so sad. Maybe hard to prevent cancer. Um, there may there's a, a genetic component to a lot of cancers. Um, it may be hard to prevent heart disease for the same reason. Um, I don't know about uh, genetics for. Um, the, actually, there are some some. There genes are genetics that, for um, addiction, definitely. Yeah. And not only addiction, but for inability to metabolize certain drugs. Absolutely. But. Um, Deaths due to drug toxicity are preventable. Um, another message right now is that um, drugs taken that are not gotten from a pharmacy, one should assume they're deadly right now. Wow, so that's powerful. That's It's not just counterfeit oxycodone and counterfeit um, alprazolam, but there have been you know, a couple other now counterfeit drugs that don't have the drug that they're like. Which other having. which other drugs? Oxycodone, mm -hmm. hydrocodone, Xanax, and what other? Yeah, hydrocodone was the other, and then I forget another, but um, hydrocodone was just recently. Right, those yellow pills. Oxycodone, oxycodone and alprazolam have been for months and months now. Oh, that's a powerful message coming from a medical examiner. Any drug you take outside of a pharmacy can kill you. You don't know what you're getting. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Kapman, our medical examiner at San Diego County, for your inspiring and educational information today. I think um, these are the kind of things that you wouldn't know about unless we had this discussion and uh, this episode. And thank you to you also, Julia from New Jersey for asking a very good question and being involved in youth prevention. It's important to have people like you in, involved in these coalitions and encourage other people not to start using drugs. The biggest impact we can have uh, in our country is preventing a problem before it occurs and you're an inspiration to that. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Resources in San Diego. And also thank you to Positive Youth, prevention organization from New Jersey who got us a Julia and her question and thank you to all the amazing out of the box thinking and doing everything in order to prevent drug use and problems before they start. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review and subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. 
We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.